This is a show about individual experience and personal identity. There may be times when folks use identifying words or phrases that don't feel right to you. That's part of what we're exploring here. Please listen with an open heart, and as always, I welcome your polite, engaged feedback, and I encourage you to continue the conversation in your own life and with your own community. Welcome to Query. Hey, Queeros, Cami here. Wow, some exciting things to mention. Number one, 181 Patreon patrons. 181. You know what, though? Tens of thousands of people listen to this show. So I feel like we could get to 200 Patreon patrons. Anyway, just want to mention patreon.com slash heyqueeros. Join up. Give some moolah to support your favorite show. And there's a ton of cool perks. Oh, so fun. Hey, speaking of things that are going to be your favorite, I wanted to mention Cammy's Book Club. So I'm a member of a bunch of book clubs in my personal life, and I'm a huge reader. And I realized that I could probably do more to help other queer authors with some visibility and also to help folks who follow me to find books that I love. So anyway, partnered with bookshop.org, you go on there, you search Cammy's Book Club in shops, you're going to get our first book, which is One Last Stop by Casey McQuiston. You can just order it through bookshop.org. What does it do? It benefits local indie booksellers. Yeah, that's right. Also, I will be having a chat with Casey, who wrote an amazing book called Red, White, and Royal Blue, and now has a second book called One Last Stop. And that chat will be on my Instagram live on June 4th at noon Pacific. So it's just like a free chance to come listen to me talk to Casey. You can grab the book, which I know will be a New York Times bestseller and which, hey, Red, White, and Royal Blue is amazing and super fun. So I'm super excited about uh, One Last Stop. I really hope that you uh, give the book a chance, read it right up. It is a cute love story, and I really enjoyed reading it. Anyway, that's what's new. Speaking of things that are new, this episode is new. I'm going to chat with Mackenzie Mack, who's an organizer and who worked on a new study with Ellen Powell um, about how COVID is changing the workplace. Um, Anyway, I love this chat. I hope you do. Have a wonderful listening experience. I've been feeling wrong, but I'm still have guests introduce themselves. Will you introduce yourself? Oh, wow. Yeah, sure. Um, so my name is Mackenzie Mack. My pronouns are they and theirs, and I am a researcher, facilitator, um, a performer, um, and somebody who does a lot of work related specifically to social equity in the workplace um, and, and relationship building outside of outside of work, too. Yeah, this is why... Um we're talking today part of this is because there's there's a recent is study the right word is study the right word there was a recent study study. that um you know you had emailed our producer sierra about and i was checking into it reading up about it but i wanted to talk about your work most recently so could you just give us like a general overview of this work that you've recently done yeah so it's a it's a report that focuses specifically on harassment and harm in the remote workplace, where basically what we did is we led interviews with people globally and we surveyed about 3,000 people and we basically asked them, like, you know, what are your experiences like with harm um, and in tech? And then specifically also, what are your experiences like with, um, with harassment in the remote workplace? Like, what's happening with that? How is that changing? Is that, is that decreasing? Is it increasing? Has it stayed the same in the age of COVID-19? The report um, that we did was with Project Include. So that's an organization that was started by Ellen Powell, the former CEO of Reddit. And um, we, as co-authors, meeting myself, Ellen Powell, Yang Hong, um, and Caroline Sanders, basically led this research over like eight months. So we we put a lot of time and and labor into it. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I suppose it's funny because it's like, I didn't even necessarily realize that somebody would be studying this contemporaneously, you know, as, as it's unfolding, the workplace yeah. is, is so new. And so I'm, I'm glad that y'all were. Um, and I'd like to hear just a little bit, if you could just sort of start by 
um, talking about what you found out. Like, what, what did you find out? Sure. So I think we found out a lot of things that people already know. <laughs> you know, so we, we know that the folks that are experiencing the most harassment in the workplace and the, and the folks who are experiencing the most in terms of it increasing in COVID-19 are queer and trans people, are women and non-binary folks, are Black, um, Latinx, Asian folks, Indigenous people. We know that 42% of trans folks that responded to the survey are experiencing an increase in gender-based harassment, almost it's almost doubled in the age of COVID-19. I want to just pause for a second here because you said, you know, that the study sort of found what we already know, but um, I will say I don't know that I have been focused on an increase in harassment. So, I mean, and I don't, I mean, I'd love to hear more about I I am in such an unusual position compared to most people in that um, I do have workplaces, but it's not a traditional workplace. And I haven't had I haven't worked in a traditional workplace for at this point, honestly, um, decades. It's you know, I certainly do sometimes have a have jobs that last for a prolonged period of time where there's a structure and hierarchy. But, you know, like, for instance, I haven't had an HR department where I work um, since I was, I think since I was like 26, yeah. you know, and I'm 39. So anyway, I guess that's what I'm talking about when I say I wasn't necessarily tracking that because for me, the workplace is kind of like this room in my house. And for yeah. me, um, you know, when I think about the things that have happened during um, COVID, you know, I'm used to traveling and doing stand up and being clocked on different planes, wondering about my safety in the hotel that I'm staying at, walking down the street in different neighborhoods and wondering, like, what is it like in this part of Raleigh or what is it like in this part of Durham? You know, so for me, actually, COVID has been, although, you know, I have been through like Zoom bombing, I suppose, a target of harassment. Um, but that is so randomized. You know, it doesn't feel as personal as if it's a coworker or a boss. Yeah. Um, so for me, COVID has actually been a bit of a relief because it, I mean, it's also been super stressful in other ways. But in terms of the type, the ways I was interacting with other people, this has really been a lot of like, this has been a different um, I have had less interaction with other people yeah. in the workplace by far. So mm -hmm. yeah, that's I my understanding of what you're talking about. It's like zero, and I'd love to hear more. For sure. Um, thanks for thanks for helping me to kind of take a few steps back with it. I appreciate that. Um, I'll say that probably for some of the folks that are going to be listening to this podcast episode who have had a lot of experiences within the workplace, like even if it's let's say it's in person or it's remote. Um, many of them probably can relate to you in that they don't know what it's like to have an HR department. And that is right. probably HR doesn't exist, but because HR across the board has been shown to not really uh, defend and protect people that are most marginalized within these working environments. Um, because you know, they're often protecting the interests of the company yeah. right. overall, right? Is that is that kind of the, the, exactly. the thought there? Instead of human resources, it's more corporate resources. It's right. If you're being harassed and you come to me, my job as an HR representative is to ensure that the company doesn't get sued. It's not necessarily kind of stop you from being harassed. So um, there are a number of instances within remote work environments, for example, where we're talking about non-binary folks, where they're experiencing a lot of like, you know, folks mocking their, their gender expression, folks tending to make, make a joke out of their pronouns. And they go to HR and they say, hey, this is the harm that I'm experiencing. Um, and within the next few months, um, they are being put in a position where they have to work alongside the person that's been harassing them. And people in organizations and companies don't always see, who hold leadership uh, positions at least, don't always see why that's so fucked up. Can I curse this episode or can I? <laughs> sure. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> what are the rules? Um, so they don't always understand why that is, why that just is, exacerbates the harm and makes it worse. Um, the reason why I say it said that we know, we kind of, there are a lot of our findings that are not a surprise, is I'll say that, for example, for me as a Black print, I'm binary person. I know that if I was working in a, you know, in a nine to five, I haven't been working nine to five for a long time either. 
but I do have a team. I'm the CEO and founder of, of MMG, which is a global social justice organization. And we work with about 19 people in our team. Um, but still, it's a very, it's the kind of place that I've built so that it goes, it runs exactly opposite to all the negative experiences that I had coming up in the workplace. You know, so we have a 30, a 30 hour full-time work week. We like um, take a 30 day sabbatical every, every year where people just can do whatever they want. Um, wow. you know, we have free therapy. So folks don't, you know, if they, if they want to go to therapy, they have the option and they don't have to pay for it. And I think that that is very, very much an anomaly to the kinds of dynamics that we're seeing happening within the workplace. Um, I'll say that typically what, what happens when we're talking about harm within these kind of remote workplace environments, and it's also based on our research, is that people are afraid to report it because they don't want to experience corporate retaliation. Um, they don't, they understand that they're working in environments where there's a high, high level focus on productivity. Like how, how many hours can you work? Um, how can you kind of go beyond the 40 hours? And then when you ha- are at your most limited bandwidth and capacity, how can you continue to push yourself beyond that and show that you're a team player? You know, so it's a, it's a yeah. kind of really uh, toxic environment. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, it's it's also um, like, you know, thinking about what you're saying and, you know, again, my experience on this is it, it I think there's probably a lot of ways it's similar to other people's. And I think it, there's, a, there's probably a lot of ways that it's unusual. And one reason that I say that is also that um, because my primary orientation to the entertainment industry is through comedy, um, you know, I the idea that anybody would face repercussions for anything that they might say or do to another person that is brand new in comedy <laughs> like that has essentially existed for a year you know or two yeah. years because right. the idea that we're just joking around and i'm like doing quotes with my fingers that our listeners can't see um has protected abusers for decades i mean you know obviously look at somebody like Bill Cosby or look at somebody like Louis C.K., the idea that, and also because there's there's a created identity that is part of, you know, stand-up and comedy, there's a created identity and that created identity says, you know, oh, whatever they want to say off the cuff. And then, you know, when we find out this information about like, oh, this person jokes around about targeting underage women for dating, Exactly. That's not dating. That's actually not called dating, but I'll use the word they might use. Um, then when we actually find out that that's what's really going on, um, people are still like sort of surprised. And it's funny because it's like, well, that that's <laughs> that's what they've been saying, you know. Um, so anyway, I just say all of this to say that, um, you know, I'd love to hear a little bit more about, I guess, sort of what, you know, because if I think about targeted harassment, it's you know, somebody saying something directly to my face or not getting the job because I've been too loud in the past about something, you know, like I certainly understand that framework, but I'm wondering if you could talk me through, you know, some things I might not be thinking about, things that are beyond my own experience that that you found people are dealing with in the remote workplace. Um, great, great question. I really appreciate too how you're you're thinking about this through the lens of your own work like as a comedian, because I know that in particular from, from the, all the research that I've done as somebody who's been a performer for a long time, when people talk about the differences between punching, punching up and punching down in your work and your industry, I'm definitely not a comedian, but in terms of thinking about it in that way and, and the ways in which even, for example, a lot of the discourse that's been had among Black folks when it comes to Dave Chappelle, and it's like, okay, if you're making a joke about somebody being trans, and the joke is kind of, is that they're experiencing violence. Um, is that really funny? And, and where does the objectivity begin and where does the subjectivity, you know, end and kind of begin to in that? Yeah. I'll say that when it comes to harassment, it's important for people to really have a, a more expansive lens. And I think that because when we think of harassment as, for example, somebody saying something to me that is, that is negative or violent directly, um, and if it's not something that I can kind of prove is not harassment, that I think means that not only in the workplace, but in our personal lives, we end up in relationships with people who are saying and doing things that are not like explicitly violent, but um, when they add up and they culminate, right, it, it actually causes a lot of serious emotional and mental damage to the individual. So for example, in the workplace, that could include 
um, let's say that we're all in a group chat on Slack and there is one black trans woman who's in the chat who's, you know, who is um, engaging in conversation and everyone else is like a white, a white person. And all the white people are responding to each other and ignoring her completely like she don't exist. That would yeah. be completely like harassment, right? It's what is minimizing the person, reducing the person's humanity, um, and then also putting a person in a position where they are going to have limited bandwidth capacities to be able to show up as a human being, not just at work, but in their everyday life. So it's the explicit and it's also the implicit, the marginalizing of people, the ignoring of people, looking over people for, for promotions, for actual uh, equitable and anti-oppressive ways of being paid for their work and their labor. Um, it's in addition to that yelling at folks. So we get on a call, there's a conflict. And then I'm like yelling at you because I'm, I hate that. I don't like the fact that we disagree. And I think that that's an appropriate response. You know, I also want to, I guess I also want to ask, you know, um, how much you heard about the you know, really large events that were happening that were not COVID in the last year. I'm thinking the election, obviously the um, the resurgence of the Black Lives Matter movement post George Floyd's death. And, you know, I guess I'm thinking about this because I know that, you know, there's a zillion ways that that could sneak into the workplace, like just in a you know, random statement that um, that blue lives matter or like in somebody's, you know, Facebook thing that then, you know, you know about that person's views and then you have to go work with them, um, especially if you're a member of the marginalized community in this case. I just would imagine that like um that this was a, that you I would imagine you were hearing a lot about this also this the, the many other things that were happening in this year and how those sort of f- flowed into a virtual workspace specifically but I think any yeah I think even if we had been in person um, yeah definitely I mean we we did see that and we heard that uh, with the especially with the interviews that we led and um, something that I would say to that is I think that. We got to get rid of this whole, you know, work-life balance bullshit that we focus on so much. And I say that because we often consider work to be separate from what's happening in our lives, as if we're less mm-hmm. human at work. So the idea, for example, with um, a lot of our findings around queer and trans people, it's like, well, if you're dealing with the, uh, the kind of government or the kind of legislative uh, situation where people want to take rights away, for example, from trans youth, people don't want them to have access to health care. People don't want um, queer folks in the, in the workplace to be able to actually be, be treated in ways that are equitable um, and inclusive, but instead want them based on their gender, based on their sexual orientation, their sexual identity, to be treated like they don't matter. And thinking that that's something that legislatively is acceptable socially, emotionally, mentally is acceptable, interpersonal is acceptable when it's not. So the workplace is a mirror to like our society. So whatever is happening in greater society is going to show up at work. If I am experiencing, um, when I experience anti-blackness, when I'm outside of work, I don't come to work and then I think, oh yeah, you know, this is my break from anti-blackness is being able to come, 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 to, come to my nine to five and I don't have to experience that anymore. But it follows me. Um, and with this, you know, I wouldn't call it a sort of resurgence of the Black Lives Matter movement. I would say that uh, what happened is there was movement work that has been done for centuries uh, for Black lives. And that over the course of the summer, we were in a pandemic and there were a lot of white folks at home who, you know, very reasonably so felt like they didn't have any control because none of us had any control. A lot of black and brown folks too are feeling like we don't have any control over this pandemic because we don't. And I think that um, the way in which that amplified this interest and like and and thinking about and reflection on the Black Lives Matter movement is something that was able to, to happen because of the organizers and activists that have been building out that movement work for a very, very long time. Yeah, n- no doubt. I'm, I, I fully uh, I may have picked some very odd words there, but I think I'm just trying to reflect on the um, the like uptick in visibility for every person in America, as opposed to, 
how it might have been visible for black and brown folks in the last, you know, in the previous four years. I think every person in America had to be pretty aware this last year. And I think um, locally. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I agree. Um, and I think that, you know, when it, when it comes to how that showed up in, in our work and our research, something that we found is that, you know, what happens when you have increased support of black and brown people in this nation, you get white lash, right? So you see like an <laughs> increase in legislation and focus on uh, black and brown folks and immigrant folks. Um, and you see people who, white people specifically, who hold positions of power and white people who don't, who are like, the reason why I can't, don't have control over what's happening in this pandemic is because of black and brown folks, right? It's like, it, it doesn't make any sense. It's not logical, but white supremacy is not logical. Like inequity and oppression isn't something that's actually logical. So it shows up because you come into the workplace, all of that is happening. And then black and brown folks are being seen as being even more threatening. I'm like, hey, Jerry, would you like some coffee? And it's like, oh, you're trying to push, you know, critical race theory. Coffee on me, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, no, I actually just want to know if you want something to drink, man. So I think that in, in that, that increased the level of harassment and harm that we saw being done. So for example, we know that across the board, 85% of folks that responded to our survey were experiencing increased anxiety because of COVID. So that's just like COVID-related period. And then we also found that um, Black and non-binary people and women are, were, are three times as likely to experience harassment and race-based hostility than their peers, right? We know that there's an increase in um, racism and the ways in which people are experiencing racism in the workplace among Black and brown folks, Indigenous folks, and I definitely, definitely think that one of the links there is because of all the protesting and the way in which they had a lot of white people really afraid and, and fearful for the ways in which our society was going to change and the ways in which our society is changing and becoming different. What about for Asian folks? Um, I know this is like in the last two months, this is now something that the news cycle is granting any print um, after a president that very deliberately like set every I mean, obviously, it doesn't just start with our previous president, but I just mean every every brick laid by that president sort of. Um, it, my perception was that that at least in the media, it was like a real pass being given. I mean, he, what he was saying was being reported on, but there was no um, all of the articles I'm seeing now uh, feel. Like catch up work. Um, so I'm wondering if you also heard from respondents about that. Yes. So um, Asian folks were also among those who were disproportionately impacted by the sort of increase in harassment and hostility. Um, and something that I think that I would want to add to that is that because of the way in which our society has built out isms, so like racism, anti-Black racism, anti-Asian racism, anti-Indigenous racism, when it comes specifically to the kinds of ways in which Asian folks are experiencing discrimination, harassment, hostility in the workplace, there are a lot of folks that have the misconception that think that it's a new thing, that are like, oh, well, you know, it's because of what Trump said, and so that's why Asian folks are experiencing racism. And it's like, well, it is amplified, especially anti-Asian violence has been amplified because of all that fear-mongering and because of all that xenophobia that was being pushed by, you know, president of the United States, who gratefully is not president anymore. Um, but that it, that was already existing in, at, at work and the increased sort of visibility on the on the anti-Asian racism, on the anti-Asian violence is important and critical in the workplace, because otherwise people consider, for example, Asian folks who potentially might be making more on average among, among black and brown folks within a specific industry. But that must mean that they experience less racism um, and it's and it doesn't work that way. It's more of a right benevolent kind of a racism in certain instances where you could be in a position where you could be a CTO in an organization. And um, potentially what that means is, yes, you do make really good money and you do have a lot of social capital. But then you go to executive or C-suite meetings and people are holding their eyes or like, you know, uh, pretending as if they're speaking in an Asian language and thinking that that's acceptable and funny. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No. Uh, yeah, I, I, I hear you. It's at every level where, where that 
is the experience of folks of color, which includes, of course, you know, Asian folks, Black folks, Indigenous folks, and other people of color, too. Yeah, I mean, I live in California, so I feel like, uh, you know, it's a, I certainly, um, I certainly think a lot about the, the legacy of this state, particularly in terms of, uh, yeah, placing Japanese Americans in, in concentration camps. And that is, that is, uh, recent. (laughs) It's like really recent. That's, you know. Um, so and people think, oh, it happened a long time ago. Like it's over. It's like, no, that's not how life works. No, that's really, really how history yeah. works, you know, that's, how, that's not how history works. Right. Why would a remote workplace cause more of this like what 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 is the tie there why is that yeah that's a great question i love that you asked that so i think it's not really that it's the remote workplaces causing more it's that we're in a pandemic and people had to work remotely because they couldn't be in person right they had mm-hmm. to be social distance and so it's it's it basically is everything tied together and when you have an existing inequity within an environment and you add in all this extra stress and anxiety, and then you also add in a number of folks who, um, or a number of working environments where they're used to seeing people in person, but now bought it to an online environment only, that it becomes, that those inequities become amplified because they, they already exist. Um, and so if you are adding more pressure and more stress and anxiety, then what's going to happen, they're going to, you know, they're going to boil over, they're going to get worse, as opposed to them getting better because we're not in a physical place together, but just because we're not in a physical place together doesn't mean that we can't still be treated poorly by people. Yeah. I'm also thinking about, and this isn't um, harassment, but it's certainly a burden of extra work. I'm also thinking about the number of, like, sort of woke workplaces that... Um, oh, don't get me started on that. <laughs> ...that uh, have required sort of internal teaching um from the members of that workforce who fall into communities that have um like been in the news and so then internally that company has to be like well this is our training for this thing and it's going to be run by these members of our workforce who then have to do extra work um and did that show up in your, did people talk about that in your findings? I know you know what I'm talking about. Maybe, yeah, so if that didn't show up in your findings, maybe we could just talk about it. But did it show up in your, that, that like emotional labor slash actual time um, that folks were doing with this like sort of internal education? Uh, so I would say that that didn't necessarily show up in our research, but it's something that at our work at MMG shows up all the time. Um, where it's the expectation of additional emotional labor for no payment. Like the, the, the glorious sort of EDI committee. We're going to focus on our diversity, equity, inclusion work. Let's put the disabled folks, the black and brown folks, the Asian folks, the trans and queer folks on a committee. And then let's have them come up with all these policies. And then let's not listen to them. Is basically something that we see. They're going to do all this work for months, and then we're going to be like, "Yeah, we're not going to do that." So, but thanks for your time. And so that happens a lot. Um, and and I think it. I like how you said. Was it? Did you use the term work woke, woke workforce? That what you yeah. said? Yeah, yeah. The woke workplace satire, because I think in terms of how that plays out in a lot of workplaces. Uh, white people specifically, we're talking about race, white people think, oh, okay, well, uh, you are doing yourself a favor by being involved in this work to help us become more equitable or to become more racially aware. If we're talking about queer and trans people, it could be cis folks, heterosexual folks who are like, okay, well, you're doing yourself a favor because if you want me to treat you better, then you should teach me how to do that. And I think that the, the ways in which that, that logic is <laughs> incredibly flawed is that if I am, if I'm sort of busy coming to work, doing my job, 
And then also, in addition to that, my the expectation is that I'm supposed to teach you how to talk to me as a queer person. I'm supposed to teach you how to talk to me as, as a woman or as a non-binary person. That takes me away from my growth in my work. It takes me away from what I'm focusing on. And it requires a hefty amount of emotional labor that is something that I never agreed to, to offer to nobody. So it's, it's inherently inequitable in that way. And it further marginalizes me as a human being, as opposed to creating a working environment that is going to be braver, a working environment that's going to be safer for me. It does the opposite. Well, maybe I'll ask a more personal question then. If, if you, um, you know, we're talking about this generally, but then this is also essential in some ways, a, you know, position that you have opted into to some degree by the nature of the work that you chose to do. And so I'm curious, um, how you, you know, protect yourself and stay sane and safe and how, and, you know, maintain your boundaries, given that there's like some amount of sort of education that you are offering by nature of the job that you have. I feel like there's a lot of people that would really love to hear that question. I mean, I know I would love to hear the answer to that because that's always what I'm trying to navigate is like, okay, well, I've sort of volunteered for this. Mm -hmm. So I have to then be very clear about what I'm willing to do because I don't just work at like a, you know, cog factory. I like have chosen to be a person who speaks about social inequity. So then, you know, I open myself up for this. You know, my background is as a digital organizer. So I'm originally from the South side of Chicago. Um, I began in this work out, like from what I thought was going to, I'll say, well, I won't say from what I thought, but I'll say that when I first started working, I didn't think that I was going to be focused on research around social inequities and like strategic direction and developing action plans for people and organizations and sometimes having to um, be on calls with billionaires who are like, hey, it's fine that people are being treated poorly here. That's their problem. And having to push back on that. And coming from an, a background as an activist and organizer has helped me a lot in developing boundaries that protect me from the ways in which that weighs on me because it does weigh on me. You know, I think anybody who is a, a person who understands what it's like to experience marginalization um, who's doing work like this, if they're saying it doesn't weigh on me, it doesn't bother me, it's lying. Because it does, because it's so personal. You know, and I think that for me, what helps a lot is therapy. I will say that, because I think it's so important to be able to validate and affirm, hey, getting a therapist and going to therapy and being able to talk through the ways in which you are experiencing marginalization and oppression every day, is, is just like, for me, has, has been so helpful. And then also, there are a number of things that I choose not to personalize where I recognize that if I'm coming into an environment and there's some white, you know, guy, bro, CEO who doesn't want to listen to me tell them, like the way in which you're leading in this organization is actually not only ineffective, but it's fucking violent. And like, you need to cut the shit out. Um, that me being able to say something like that and then also still get pushback and not take it personally, but to be like, you know, this person actually has is really, really attached to dominance and the idea that they're in control of something they're not in control of. And that actually don't have shit to do with me. So like I can still show up and I can do the work and I can be very consistent um, and patient because I think the work also calls for patience and grace too, of understanding that you're still working with human beings that are still imperfect and on their best day are still gonna do things that you know are, are based on the ways in which they've internalized inequities and oppressions. But uh, being able to not personalize it in those ways has helped me a lot. I work on a team of folks that are made up mostly of black and brown folks, of queer and trans people, of people with disabilities, um, of organizers, of activists, of social scientists like myself. And they also help me a lot with uh, keeping things in perspective. I also help them too, where sometimes, just like with anything else, you get on a call, you get off a call, and you're like, okay, now I'm feeling, I'm starting to feel pissed now (laughs) based on what was being said. And to be able to take a step back and to ask, okay, well, what is it that you believe? Like, how do we change societies? How do we change culture? And if you believe that you change society and culture by getting on one call or doing one meeting or having one conflict, then you're done, right? You have to know that that actually is not how change happens. So what does it mean to build a very very intentional resilience that is not about sacrificing our well-being, but it's about, uh, you know, staying in the trenches for as long as we need to, and then also getting out of the trenches so we can just take care of ourselves. 
Yeah, I mean, I have an additional follow-up question, which is <laughs> how how do you keep or do you have some strategies? How do you keep it in focus that yeah. this is not personal? If you're in that moment, because for I will say for me, I that's tough for me. I've <laughs> that's a tough one. Um I can get pretty heated and I can get pretty um you know, I'm like, I, I have a very hard time not defending, not fighting, not, not playing a strong defense, a defense that then becomes an offense. That's tough for me. Um, you know, I can be so chill with somebody that I, you know, perceive some respect from, and I can be very, um, aggressive with people that, I don't perceive a baseline of respect from. Um, So I'm just curious about like a strategy that you might have. And something that I'll say to what you just shared, Cameron, is that it's okay to be aggressive. Like somebody is attempting to dehumanize, you know, like the fact that you respond in an aggressive way is actually not bad, but unfortunately kind of society we live in, there's a lot of gaslighting. So we gaslight the the person that's on the receiving end of disrespect and we tell them, but you need to be kind or you need to be more understanding. All this person, all they're saying is that they don't believe that queer people matter. It's like, you know, get over it. <laughs> <laughs> that one, yeah, cosine. You're totally right. I think what I'm more worried about at this point in my life is like the exhaustion. Like I, first of all, I need to hear, I do need to hear that. I, you're right. And I do need to hear that. Like I need to hear that over and over again because it is the majority message is like, it's not a big of a deal. Second, you know, like, of course. So I do need to hear what you just said. And I also like, I guess I just don't for myself. I don't want to be fighting that hard always. You know, it's like, I, yeah, it's too tiring. <laughs> and that's how I used to be too. I'm, well, I would say I love astrology. I'm an Aries and my mm. North Node Aries. And I have a lot of other stuff in my chart that's Aries. And Aries energy is known for being very like, you know, um, fisticuffs. Like, okay, what? Okay, now we're now we need to fight immediately because (laughs) it's disrespectful and goofy. So now we actually need to physically have an altercation. (laughs) (laughs) I think that for me, that's how I used to show up. It's like, okay, fight, 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 fight. Which I don't think is a bad thing to to have a, a sort of fight response. Um, when someone is attempting to harm you or hurt you, means that you actually love yourself and that you believe mm-hmm. that you're worthy of being protected and defended. So that's actually a great thing. It's a good place to be in. But then like speaking to, to what you shared, what I also found personally is that it exhausted me so much that I couldn't even do things that I really wanted to do. I couldn't even live a life. Because then I found that everything, you know, was about, I can't believe they said this. I need to deal with this now. Or I can't believe this is happening. I need to campaign around this now. Or I can't believe this person who who is this like celebrity who said this thing, which is so irresponsible. Like I need to do something about it now. Um, And so for me, it's really picking and choosing. Like what are my boundaries around the ways in which I'm interacting with people? And what are some instances where it, it, it really is important for me to show up and say, okay, we need to actually have a one-on-one so you understand you could never do this again. Um, or even me defending myself, protecting myself in the ways that I that I need to be most appropriate. And then what are some instances where all I need to do is walk away? Where I'm like, huh, okay, I will never talk to you again. And <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. I don't want you in my life. We're not gonna be friends after this. And I'm also not going to allow your insecurities as like, for example, a man or your insecurities, insecurities as a cis person, um, as a heterosexual person, right? I'm not going to take that home with me where then I'm trying to spend time with my family with, within my life. And all I'm doing is thinking about how pissed I am that you said something that was just unacceptable. Because it's like, that actually is something for you to hold. So why am I caring? Yeah, I I think I think the picking and choosing is so is so right on, you know, I mean, for me, that's been a huge part of my evolution is like, I just found myself a couple of years ago, like, it's like I'm responding to 
somebody's random tweet on the internet with the same fervor that I'm responding to, like an actual physical thing that's happening in my community, you know, it like, like as if those things have, um, equal weight and, you know, they might not like they might, you know, there's, there are certainly things that can cause harm. Um, but you know, somebody being rude to me or somebody like that's not there. Not everything has the same weight, I guess is what I'm saying. And I think for a long time, I think because I was like, um, I was really into like teaching people (laughs) how to be, this is how you need to be, you know, then I gave a lot of different things the same weight. Um, and I just don't know that that for like a long-term strategy for me personally, uh, that's something I'm trying to move away from because like, you know, I need to have the energy to deal with the things that have the bigger weight. Right. And it, it can be difficult. I mean, I'll say that for me on social media, that can especially be difficult. Oh, yeah. Because I'm talking about, you know, uh, queer and trans communities and black and brown, and Asian and indigenous communities. And you do have, you know, you get the trolls, you get folks that are like, you know, saying things because they not only want to hurt you, but because they want to hurt other people, you know, who you're, who you're actually are really talking to, who you're actually attempting to defend. And um, it can be so easy to kind of be caught up into that every time that it happens. I found that when I started just blocking people like, oh, okay, uh, blocked or okay, deleted. And it gave me permission to not allow that person to be my distraction, which actually I am so glad we're still talking Ooh. about this. Because, yes. <laughs> Ooh, I like that. Keep going. Keep going. Yes. Because I was going to say this at the outset, then I forgot, but um, there is this interview that Toni Morrison did in the 90s, I think, 80s or 90s, with Charlie Rose. And on this interview, she talks about how um, racism is a distraction. Um, and I like, I, I love hearing those words because it helps me with all the other isms. So I consider every ism now to be a distraction. Um, and and talks about the ways in which, right, there always is going to be one more thing. So it's, you're not um, you're not acceptable enough in society because you date women, or you're not acceptable in society because you're not a binary gender person, or because you're too black, or too Asian, or you're too this, or you have disabilities. And in a society like that, that isn't attempting to marginalize us. It's not about us. It, it's never about us. It's always about distracting us from the things that actually are going to help us to be liberated. And so when I think about that, I think, okay. Well, with this person saying this, what are they trying to distract me from? And how do I really kick their ass by ignoring, ignoring them and focusing on the things they really don't want me to focus on? <laughs> As opposed to going back and forth with the person who wants to distract me from what I'm doing because it makes them insecure. So they want to they catch me up into something. So I'll be so focused on that, so en- enraged by it, that then I actually am not focused on doing the things that are really important, which is not going back and forth with people that don't, you know, that are committed to not understanding me and that are committed to not caring about people, not caring about human beings, because those are not my people. Those are not the people that I'm talking to. Wow. I mean, I think that's so beautiful. What are, what's, what are the things that are in your life that are beyond your distractions? Yeah. Oh, I love that. That also be a great title for a book. We have woke workforce. We have beyond distractions. (laughs) (laughs) We're creating a lot of things on this call. Um, For me, music, like I love, um, I love rap and I love composing and I love performing. Um, And that's something that is beyond distraction for me. I would say my uh, friends in my community. So for example, at MMG, it is a workplace. Um, And for me, I find that the focus on how can we make this business the most anti-capitalist business it could be, where there's no... There's no exploitation of the working class and there's no like your value. You're only as valuable in this community as you are able to do work well or as you're able to be productive. Like, how can I give the middle finger to all these norms that are just create these kinds of places that are adversarial, that are harmful? And like, how can I experiment like that? Like experiment with that. Like, what more can I do? What more can I do? What more can I do? Um, And so that also is something for me that goes beyond distraction. Um, I love writing. Writing out uh, short stories, I, I, you know, have been for, for since forever, 
for me, one of the ways that I coped with my own experiences with abuse as a child was always through writing. It was like, how can I create another world that's not like this one that's better than the one that I'm in? And write about it, you know, and, and make it real by, by, you know, putting pens to paper. So I would say that those are a few things, um, you know, and then I think I love my Real Housewives of Atlanta, my Real Housewives mm. of New Jersey. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. Okay, love you, Tom, if you're listening to this. <laughs> that being able to just be and exist um, and not have everything be about analysis or about social justice work all the time is what helps uh, me to, to keep sane, but then also to really value my own human life and, and to wake up every day focusing on humanizing myself in a society that is intent on dehumanizing me. Oh, I'm just smiling. I love to hear what you're into and what's a good part of your life. That's awesome. I mean, and what about you? So happy. Oh, sure. Uh, you know what? I gotta say, I, I am like really enjoying my life right now. These days I had a lot of years where I was like, not really enjoying my life. I was very focused on goals or I was very focused on being angry at everybody. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I have really been enjoying my life. And so, you know, the stuff that I have been enjoying doing, um, I think like, you know, people, a, a, a discomfort with what was going on for me gender wise when I was a little kid, really like a, like a lot of feedback. And so, um, I think I like really have not used my body all the ways that I want to use my body for a long time, but I, um, I mean, I can't remember if I've talked about this in the podcast, so, so sorry to the listeners if I have, but there's a YMCA in my neighborhood that has a pool and I love to swim and I've been going swimming and it's like the people that swim, it's like old biddies. It's like people that are like truly like 80 years old and they're out there like just like working it. And it's just like, anyway, I go and I swim with these old people and it's like a true dream and definitely people are still confused. I mean, I will say that. Like, I'm like, it, I don't, you know, people are still confused. So, and it's been really fun to, you know, cause you have to put on a certain, you have to put on a gendered bathing suit. You have to go in a gendered um, locker room. And. Well, you have to put on a gender bathing suit? Well, yeah. I mean, there are like men's bathing suits and there are women's bathing suits, you know, especially for something like, like lap swimming, yeah. you know? So. That's what I mean. It's like the this is it's just always been a a stressful area for me. But I've decided that I think it's more fun than um the fun outweighs the other people's curiosity. So I'm excited to be doing that. That's really been fun. I've also been reading so much. I'm reading my ass off. <laughs> Um, and I love to read and it's been really cool. And I, um, uh, I don't know. I'm a member of a couple book clubs and so it's just like nerd stuff, you know, it's like stuff that is like pretty internal and quiet. So I'm, I'm having a ball actually. Thanks for sharing. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I've been going to like outdoor group exercises, exercise classes, also wearing little spandex outfits. Look, we don't know. <laughs> we don't know what's possible for us. <laughs> no, it's true. You we know, don't. so. We'll push me on. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. No. You know, I like to use, I like to use my body and it's then odd to be in a body that other people have a lot of questions about because then um, I think I stopped doing that for a long time because I just didn't want to attract attention, but I'm in a new zone. Yeah. And something, you know, I've learned as a non-binary person is they know whether, whether we are like dressing in the ways that we want to or not. It's like a, it's like a, a clocking of the fact that you're different. And there's still some, some ways that I've found the curiosity shows up anyway. And also disrespect too. And I think, you know, for me, 
Um, I like the idea of pushing beyond and just being like, you know what? I know that that potentially is yeah. going to be an increased uh, visibility. It's going to be increased questions. And, and I don't care, you know, because it's also not my personal problem. And I don't have to answer anything that I want to answer. And if I want to go out and wear my spandex and my chain link tops, you know, with no, with no sort of underneath anything, and that makes me happy, then that's exactly what I'm, what I'm going to do. Yeah. I'm, I'm in that zone. It's been pretty, it's been pretty fun to feel some more freedom there. So yay, more freedom is apparently possible. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Um, well, we're sort of nearing the end of our time and I really appreciate you talking with me today. And, you know, as I send you back into your life, I always ask folks to shout out a queero, um, which is like a queer hero, person, place, or thing that made you feel that you could be who you are today. Is there anybody or anything you'd like to shout out? That's so, I love that. I love that. Um, I also love the idea of you sending me back into life because I'm like, oh my God, I feel like I'm about to really go do something now. <laughs> 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 I'm so sorry to do something going to bed, but I love that. <laughs> um, let's see. There's so many people. So I think that my, my second mom, Ladora, passed away last year. And um, very, very, like an anesthesiologist, very much the kind of person that helped me to think beyond other people's um, acceptance of me or non-acceptance and was always a wildfire type of a person, fisticuff type of a person, which clearly I didn't have a lot of respect for. And she taught me a lot about um, being myself. And she taught me a lot about uh, loving myself. So I would say that. I would say that, and, um, and also, you know, may she rest in power. I would say that in addition to that, somebody whose work I've been, I've been thinking about a lot lately, um, which focuses on a, a, a Black trans woman, would be Angelica Ross, and uh, the work that she's been doing, just period, in, in terms of her just being brilliant and amazing. But with trans tech social, so like how do we, you know, further these opportunities for queer and trans folks, trans and non-binary people um, in tech and how do we create these environments where we can come together and, and talk through what, what it means for us to be successful and for us to define that on our own terms. And seeing all the work that she's done in that way has been so amazing. The work of T.S. Madison and the ways in which T.S. Madison is leveraging her celebrity to speak more about um, how Black folks and prominent Black people are um, being more res- or need to be more responsible about the ways in which they talk about queer folks and trans people um, and the ways in which they think about what it means to uh, be allies to, to our communities and, and to show support and show love and, and caring and intention. So I probably would say those, those three folks for sure. Well, thank you for that. And thank you for being here today and, and for the work that you're doing. Yeah, it's been really nice talking to you. Yeah. Yes, yeah, great talking to you too. I hope you enjoy this today. Thank you. <laughs> I will. <laughs> <laughs>